With the latest agriculture news from across the state and nation, it's time for the AgNet News Hour from AgNet West. Here's your host, Sabrina Halbertson. Good morning, and thank you for joining us this morning on the AgNet News Hour. Coming up later, we'll tell you about a CDFA grant to support pollinators in citrus groves and the California climate laws that are challenged by ag groups. But we start off today with Brian German and this week's Chill Hour report. In this week's California Chill Hour report brought to you by Dormex. Wake up your buds with Dormex. Research director at the Mari Agricultural Research Institute, Masood Kesri, joins us again today to highlight some of the findings of a two-year study they've been working on looking at using Dormex in pistachios. Kesri explained that the data has shown positive effects on pistachio trees, even in different weather scenarios. The results of our two-year study showed that breath-breaking agents, particularly Dormex, advanced bloom in both marginal chillier and high chilliers. We also found out that Dormex application pays in years with variable chill accumulation and also regardless of on and off bearing status of trees. Although our data showed that in marginal to low chill years or location, Dormex application in dry timing could increase the yield significantly compared to control non-spray trees. Kesri noted rest-breaking agents could become an even more important tool for growers in the coming years. We are actually anticipating more warm winters in the next 30 years based on the predicted weather data. However, replacing the current Chairman and Peter Pistachio trees with lower chill varieties like Golden Hills or Lost Hills isn't a straightforward solution for many California growers. I can say to address this, we need to enhance our understanding of risk-breaking agents, particularly Dormex. Dormex is a new product in the market, so we need to have a good understanding on application of Dormex in the pistachio fields. And I can say that using Dormex as a tool when necessary, you know, becomes very crucial. Kesri said that understanding will help growers use the tool most effectively, particularly when it comes to timing. In our recent two-year replicated research trial at large scale, we observed no negative impact of Dormex in both marginal and high chill years when applied at the right timing. However, uh, I can say applying Dormex very early, such as at CP55 or early February, in both marginal and high chill years can lead to severe bloom asynchrony, subsequently reducing yield and increasing the blank percentage. Therefore, timing is a critical factor. And information from the UC Davis Chill Calculator shows that as of February 5th, the Shafter Simis station has logged 47.9 portions under the dynamic model with 678 hours below 45 degrees. The station in five points has registered 51.1 portions with 681 hours. There have been 832 hours in Merced with 51.2 cumulative portions. In Manteca, there have been 632 chill hours, equating to 53.1 portions. Finally, the Sima station in Durham has registered 57.4 portions with 763 hours. And this has been the California Chill Hour Report brought to you by Dormex. Tune in again next week for another episode. Crop insurers gathered this week for the industry's annual convention in Arizona, where they committed to building on the success of crop insurance to strengthen the farm safety net. Michael Clements shares more. 
Scott Arnold is the chair of National Crop Insurance Services and chairman of Rain and Hail, the largest crop insurance provider in the United States. Congress has repeatedly voted to strengthen the crop insurance program over the years, laying the foundation for a smart, actuarially sound federal policy. This bipartisan, broad support for crop insurance has created a program that not only works for farmers and ranchers in all 50 states, but additionally strengthens food security. Everyone needs farmers to eat, and crop insurance keeps America's farmers growing after regional and widespread disasters. Last year, crop insurance protected more than 540 million acres of farmland, a new record. Crop and livestock liabilities totaled more than $205 billion. Crop insurance is the preferred risk management tool, in large part because farmers know if a disaster were to strike their farm, the crop insurance agent and company adjuster will be there to help them navigate next steps and ensure aid and indemnification is delivered quickly. I've numerous times witnessed firsthand the despair evidence on a farmer's face when they've lost a harvest. And the relief when together with the adjuster and agent, a check is delivered, although not something that will provide them a profit, but does reduce the sting of the disaster and allow them to put the crop in the ground the following year. Arnold also thanked the more than 20,000 men and women who effectively deliver crop insurance. Crop insurance is driven by people. There are so many hardworking insurance agents, loss adjusters, and company employees working tirelessly to support and serve America's farmers and ranchers who count on us. And thanks to this network, together we have always delivered. The Crop Insurance Convention also championed the investments needed to ensure crop insurance remains a strong, sustainable, and diverse program. Crop insurers have never stopped working to improve, strengthen, and make available the crop insurance program to all policyholders. Whether it's outreach to limited resource and socially disadvantaged producers, investments in research and science, or educational efforts on the importance of the farm safety net, crop insurers are building a better future for American agriculture. Michael Clements reporting. This is the AgNet News Hour, and we will be back in just a moment with more agriculture news. You are listening to the AgNet News Hour. I'm Sabrina Halverson. In today's national spotlight, Montana is among states highlighted regarding winter wheat crop condition within USDA's end of January state stories report. Rodvane gives us details. 14 of 18 major winter wheat reporting states offer data on crop condition for USDA's end of January state stories report. Take-home points from the report, according to USDA meteorologist Brad Rippey, include Montana post-mid-January freeze and minimal snow cover. Montana reports that there was moderate to severe freeze damage on 21% of the crop, 32% of the winter wheat crop reporting light freeze damage, but perhaps more importantly, nearly half of the crop, 47%, there is no observed freeze damage at this point. Based on that, Montana, despite the cold wave in mid-January, seeing an improvement in the overall crop health, at least based on observations, 21% of the crop reported very poor to poor a month ago. That is now 3%. Other notable month-over month changes in state winter wheat condition include more than 10 percentage point improvements in the good to excellent categories in four of our reporting states. I'm Rod Bain reporting for the U.S. Department of Agriculture in Washington, D.C. Raccoons, not just a problem for suburban homeowners, they're also a big problem for farmers. Gary Crawford has more. When it comes to finding songs sung by raccoons or about raccoons, the pickings are pretty slim, as you can hear for yourself. I'm a raccoon, how do you do? I would like to play a game with you. Ah, but when it comes to farmers versus raccoons, it is not a game. 
They'll eat just about anything. The raccoons, not the farmers. That's Drew Ricketts. He's a Kansas State University wildlife management specialist, and he says raccoons cause a lot of trouble for farmers spreading disease to pets and people, tearing into barns and feed sheds, or just eating the crops right out of the field. Our specialty crop producers really suffer from raccoon damage sometimes. And so, you know, the the folks who are growing crops like watermelons and cantaloupes and and pumpkins and squashes and and vegetables like that, raccoons can do an incredible amount of damage. Financial damage. If a cantaloupe has one bite taken out of it, then that cantaloupe is no longer usable or marketable. And so that's a big challenge for those specialty crop producers. But Ricketts sometimes is called in to help growers of field crops like corn and sorghum that are being eaten by raccoons. Also, stored livestock feed can take a big hit from raccoons. If we get a a raccoon inside of a bin that contains corn that's meant for livestock, they can do an incredible amount of damage to that. If we have bag feed stored somewhere, they can do a lot of damage to that. And not just from the animals eating the feed, but from the feces the raccoons leave back there. Best idea? Consult with a professional wildlife control expert. Gary Crawford reporting for the U.S. Department of Agriculture. That's today's National Spotlight. Now here's Will Jordan with today's Livestock Report. In today's Livestock News, last Wednesday's cattle inventory report showed an unsurprising trend as the U.S. cow herd saw a 2% decrease since last year. Terrell Platt, market analyst for Cattle Facts, shares more. Uh, there wasn't, I suppose, very many big surprises relative to expectations. It does still look like that we're in that liquidation phase as far as our beef cow inventory. We don't see any major signs of heifer retention here to start. Uh, obviously, with the drought challenges we've faced as an industry and profitability challenges up until 2023, uh, the industry hasn't been in position to shift towards expansion in any kind of meaningful way. Uh, when we do look at the weather here in 2024, uh, we're in that El Nino pattern for now. And that's going to help with some drought alleviation, uh, especially there in the southern plains, which is much welcome and much needed. The headwind we face here going forward, even though prices are near record high levels or at record high levels, is we're likely to shift back to that La Nina pattern, uh, which increases our drought risk. So as we kind of look forward down in the line into 24, 25, 6, and 7, uh, if we're not going to be able to maybe retain as much as profitability would say we should here in 24, uh, that might kick the can down the road, for lack of a better term, and extend this tight supply environment a little bit longer. Yet, as those supplies remain tight, it's important to give careful consideration to any retained females. Platt noted how cow size should be considered when herd rebuilding does begin, emphasizing the importance of matching cattle to their environment. I suppose it's kind of the age-old mantra that you need to find cattle that do fit your environment, right? And I think producers know best uh, uh, over time what is that right cow size. But knowing your cow size, too, is something I think is an industry that that we need to take a look at. Uh, When you look at cattle performance just there in the feed yard, uh, especially here through the second half of 2023, uh, we had some pretty impressive conversions, average daily gains, and outweights with, on average, live weights probably closer to 1,500 pounds. Uh, What I think back to on that is what does that mean back to our cow base of how big are these cows getting in some of these regions, and could we be more efficient by maybe moderating that cow size and and getting more calves on the ground if we can increase the amount of cows that we're running per per. Uh, the amount of land that we have. Looking at the report, there were 87.2 million head of cattle and calves across U.S. farms at the start of the year, a 2% decrease year to date. 
37.6 million head were cows or heifers that have cat, with 28.2 million head of beef cows and 9.36 million head of dairy cows from that total. There were 33.6 million calves born in the U.S. last year, with 26% of that crop born in the second half of the year. In the Agnet West coverage area specifically, Arizona had 1% decrease in all cattle and calves from 980,000 to 970,000, while all cows and heifers that have calves saw an increase from 370,000 to 375,000, a 1% increase. In California, all cattle and calves totaled 5.1 million head to start 2024, down 2% from 5.2 million head year-to-date. Cows and heifers that have calved only saw a 1% decrease in the Golden State from 2.4 million head in 2023 to 2.38 million head in 2024. I'm Will Jordan for Agnet West. Keep feeding the world. Don't forget, if you've missed any of our morning shows or if you just want to catch the news at a different time, you can subscribe to our podcast and have statewide agriculture news at your convenience. Just search for the Agnet News Hour on your favorite podcast downloading app. This is the Agnet News Hour. I'm Sabrina Halverson, and we will be back in just a moment. Welcome back to the Agnet News Hour. I'm Sabrina Halverson. Coming up in a few moments, we'll have today's This Land of Ours report, but first, more of the day's agriculture news. And with today's Agnet West headlines, here's Agnet West Farm News Director Brian German. American Pistachio Growers is maintaining its organizational focus on marketing efforts and helping industry members expand opportunities for selling product. APG Interim President Joel Nelson said that the whole idea is to do a better job in getting a net return per acre for the growers. And part of that effort includes keeping industry members up to date on what the organization is doing. We're coming out with our latest annual report. It'll be out in February. Our annual conference is in Monterey the end of February. You'll see more communications coming from our office. We're calling it e-news. We used to do that once a month. We're going to do it twice a month. Not as colorful. It's more the black and white version, for one of a better term. But it's going to be very newsy as to what APG and its staff is up to. Because like I said, if we're not doing anything that enhances the return per acre for the grower, we're not doing our job. The nonprofit organization aiming for federal approval of hemp grain products and animal feed, the Hemp Feed Coalition announced a tentative approval for hemp seed meal for laying hens. The development was announced at the recent Association of American Feed Control Officials mid-year meeting. Following the FDA Center for Veterinary Medicine's recommendation, the Ingredient Definition Committee approved the HSM definition with no opposition. The approval over three years in the making permits processors to include HSM, a highly nutritious hemp grain derivative, in laying hen diets at up to 20%. Research indicates HSM's nutritional profile is similar to soy and canola, offering essential vitamins, minerals, and healthy oils. The safety of HSM has been validated through rigorous FDA evaluation, assuring its safety as a protein and fat source. A coalition including the U.S. Chamber of Commerce, American Farm Bureau Federation, and other business groups is suing California over recently enacted corporate climate disclosure laws. The two laws mandate that companies, regardless of their headquarters location, report emissions across their supply chain and disclose climate-related financial risks and mitigation strategies. The lawsuit argues that these laws violate the First Amendment, compelling businesses to engage in subjective speech and exceed California's jurisdiction by attempting to set a national standard. Critics highlight the law's impracticality and potential to burden businesses with excessive costs. The legal challenge signifies growing opposition to climate-related regulations with concerns about compliance challenges and the potential impact on businesses, particularly among smaller entities that don't have the resources for comprehensive emissions reporting. 
The California Farm Bureau, along with the California Citrus Quality Council and the Xerxes Society, has secured a $5 million grant from the California Department of Food and Agriculture to implement climate-smart farming practices in citrus groves across 11 counties. The project is part of CDFA's Healthy Soils Block Grant Pilot Program. It will focus on hedgerow planting, carbon sequestration, and soil management to create pollinator-friendly habitats. Over three years, between 20 and 45 citrus groves spread throughout 11 counties will benefit from the grant. The citrus sector and the counties that will be supported through the project contribute around $2 billion annually and plays a vital role in job creation and environmental sustainability. More than 80% of the awards will fund the cost of on-farm healthy soil management practices in citrus groves, and the California Farm Bureau will provide administrative support and technical assistance. Industry collaboration and community are some of the key components of keeping the California raisin business moving forward. Farm manager for Victor Packing Incorporated, Robert Sahachian, highlighted their family-owned and operated business out in Madera and the importance of keeping California raisin producers successful. I mean, I'm proud to be a fourth-generation raisin farmer and a third-generation raisin packer. And uh, like I say, you know, our family business is one that uh, we believe in succession and working together and cohesively with other raisin growers along with other raisin packers. And I believe, like I say, you know, there's enough to go around for everybody out here. And the big thing is I just want to see guys be able to make a living farming. It's a way of life and uh, to succeed at it and to see future generations continue to get involved in California agriculture. Sales account manager for AgroLiquid Dylan Rogers joins us today to highlight the importance of calcium and phosphorus considerations in crops. So we're kind of, the season's getting rolling. Um, we got some, looks like some rain coming. We've had a few days of warm temperatures. So for instance, in the almond crop, you know, the, the trees are, are moving along. In fact, yesterday I was out driving around and I, I saw the first bee boxes out in the orchards. So when you start to see stuff like that, you know that the season's coming. So uh, with warm temps and the rain coming, I think things are going to start moving along pretty quick. So as far as phosphorus goes, um, it's not such a, available in colder, wet temperatures. However, it is important that you get it in the ground and that it's there for when the tree does wake up and, and start moving along. Um, after bloom, you'll start to get you know leaf out on the permanent crops. And it's important to understand that uh, what you see above ground leaves coming out, uh, the same thing's going on under the soil. So you're getting a flush of new feeder roots, and it's very important to have that phosphorus in the root zone at that time. And it's kind of a cardinal rule that uh, you don't you don't put phosphorus and calcium in the same tank. You know, they, they don't play well together, and it creates quite, quite a mess. With our technology, nutrient technology, we're using a plant-based polymer chain to protect our nutrients. So we can actually put our calcium in with with other phosphorus products and it prevents it from tying up and making a mess. So there is that option to, uh, to mix those things. I'm Brian German for Agnet West Radio Network. This is the Agnet News Hour. We will be back in just a moment with more agriculture news. Who are the nation's biggest landowners? That's coming up on this end of ours. The Land Report Research Team issued its Land Report 100 and detailed America's largest landowners. It shows that as of 2021, America's largest landowner is named Red Emerson. He and his family own just over 2.4 million acres in California, Oregon, and Washington through their timber products company, Sierra Pacific Industries. They surpassed Liberty Media Chairman John Malone's 2.2 million acres. 
CNN founder Ted Turner is America's third biggest landowner, with 2 million acres in the southeast, Great Plains, and across the west. The Land Report 100 research team analyzes transactions and scours records to determine who are America's leading landowners. That's how they broke the news in 2020 that Microsoft co-founder Bill Gates was America's largest farmland owner with more than 260,000 acres. Rural America continues to rely significantly on AM radio as an information, entertainment, and social source. But now comes concern if this medium will remain available for public safety news and alerts. Rod Bain has more. AM radio. Even with competition over the decades, over-the-air analog television, FM radio, Citizens Band radio, 8-track tapes, cassettes, compact disc, Bluetooth, streaming services, digital whatever, it remains an essential source of news, information, and entertainment, particularly in rural America. Many people don't have the high-speed internet yet, so they rely on their AM radio to get their information. Sean Voskul is with the American Association of Retired Persons, and he says radio, AM radio in particular, also has a social connection to rural listeners. There's an oversample of older Americans that live in rural areas, and so they're the primary listeners to AM radio. We know that. The sentiment about radio listeners in rural America and across the country and the stations they listen to is echoed by Manny Centeno, a program manager for the Federal Emergency Management Agency. They want hyperlocal information, that's my understanding. They want to know what's going on in their communities. They want to have a psychological connection. There is news over the past two years of some automobile manufacturers considering, if not already removing, AM radio receivers from new vehicles. The idea is for manufacturers to instead offer streaming and subscription services for a fee and in turn create another source of revenue. However, those types of moves have raised questions about potential impacts to public safety. Santeno is quick to point out AM radio is what he calls the backbone of FEMA's national emergency warning system. We reach more people over AM radio than any other medium can. National Public Warning System is made up of over 77 radio stations located around the country. We reach 90% of the U.S. population with those 77 facilities, most of which are AM stations. The proof to Centeno of AM radio's significance as a public safety alert tool, a recent study conducted by the Department of Homeland Security on behalf of FEMA. We wanted to know if our taxpayer investment dollars were going in the right direction. We are actively upgrading AM radio stations, spending millions of dollars at each site to make them more resilient and make them more available. Among the upgrades he is referring to, electromagnetic pulse shelters designed to prevent disruptions of signal transmission in the event of an emergency. Another example of AM radio and its importance in an emergency. A lot of folks in large cities are going to tell you, I don't listen to the radio, but they do. I remember in the derecho, I think it was like 2012 or 2013, there was this big straight line storm that came through D.C. and power cell phones were out. There was no other way to communicate but radio, and radio became the very dominant media in that area. And a lot of younger folks were telling me, I didn't know this much information existed on radio. I'm Rod Bain reporting for the U.S. Department of Agriculture in Washington, D.C. If you want success in starting your garden transplants from seeds this winter, here are a couple of secrets for success. Gary Crawford has more. For many home gardeners, this is the worst time of the year. Not a lot to do, but gaze out the window and wait for spring so you can go and buy those transplants and do some planting and work. But some of us just can't wait that long for that, can we? Yeah. 
Yeah, Kansas State University Extension Gardening expert Ward Upham, and when we talked to him the other day, it was perfect gardening weather. We were down to about six degrees this morning. Perfect indoor gardening weather. Uh, Good if you want to grow your own garden transplants from seeds. Now, if this is a first try at growing plants from seed, Ward says you need to have the right containers for planting, some sort of gentle warming system to keep the soil warm, and that soil. He says you need very fine seeding soil, not garden soil. A garden soil does not allow enough oxygen into those seeds. And of course, you need to keep those seeds moist. Now we have two other big suggestions. One of them is sort of strange. We'll tell you about that in a minute. But first, uh, Ward, what's the biggest mistake that people make when trying to start those seeds and start those transplants indoors? Not enough light. Not enough light. A lot of people try to grow plants in the southern facing window and often that's just not enough light. And if there's not enough light, they grow tall and spindly. Yes, tall and spindly, those famous fictitious ballroom dance champions from 1932 that I just made up. But anyway, Ward says we need to go toward the light, not standard incandescent light bulbs, however. Because they put off so much heat, you can't get them close enough in order to get the growth that you want. You're looking at either fluorescent or LED lights. Preferably LEDs made specifically for use as grow lights. Look what they say on the grow light instructions, how far they need to be above those plants. So that'll give you additional light. That'll keep those plants smaller and stockier. Okay, now here's the kind of odd suggestion to make those plants grow strong and stocky. You do what Ward Upham calls brushing them. Actually, it's sort of, well, it's almost like, well, uh, petting them. Take your hand and just rub them over the top. You don't have to move them a lot, but you have to move them some. And when you do that, that triggers that plant to become thicker at the base and form a better, stockier plant. Probably about 20 brushings a day would be about right. That would be enough that that plant will react. Uh I'm not sure, though, how my friends and neighbors are going to react to me brushing my little baby seedlings. It might make them think I've gone stark raving mad crazy with uh, cabin fever. (laughs) Yeah, it could. Uh Yeah, (laughs) but do it anyway, he says. (laughs) It will help the plants be strong and stocky as opposed to tall and spindly, who never took a single dance lesson. Gary Crawford reporting for the U.S. Department of Agriculture. Oh, This is the AgNet NewsHour, and we will be back in just a moment with more agriculture news. Welcome back to the AgNet NewsHour. Chuck Zimmerman has today's featured interview. I'm at CattleCon 2024, and I have with me Colin Woodall. And first of all, Colin, um, this is a great name for a great uh, event, and uh, CattleCon. Uh, how'd that come about? You know, when you look at the name that we used to have, the annual cattle industry convention and NCBA trade show, that was a mouthful. And we just needed to consolidate it and really brand it as being that place where cattle producers come, one, to have fun, to make decisions for the industry, and to see all their friends. So why not CattleCon? It works, it rolls off the tongue, and we've had a lot of success in branding it that way. Well, it's off to a great start. We've got, uh, I don't know what you know numbers are like, but there's certainly a lot of people here and look like they're enjoying the uh, sunshine state. Thankfully, we do have sunshine. Let's kind of just jump into some of the uh, issues that of the day that are very important to NCBA that you guys are working on. I know there's uh, quite a few, but what's kind of the most recent, uh, I don't want to say battles you've been fighting, but uh, whether it's EPA, just point out some of those. 
you know, as we go into 2024 here, there's a lot of things on our list. And really leading one of those, and not everybody's thinking about yet, are all the upcoming expiring tax provisions. Things like the death tax that expires at the end of 2025. If we are not successful in either getting a repeal of the death tax or an extension of these exemption levels, then that's it's going to go back to a, an exemption level of $5 million. And at $5 million, you do not have to have a very big operation to exceed that. Anything over that could be taxed at 40%. That's going to put people out of business. So we are putting back together our old band, which is not only other ag groups, but also the National Federation of Independent Business and other small businesses to go out and let Congress know they cannot allow the exemption levels that we have right now to expire. We need to protect family farmers and ranchers, and ultimately we need to repeal the death tax. Well, one thing that's been going on that's a huge issue, of course, is what's going on on our southern border here, the United States. Um, I don't know if I hear much said about it in relation to cattle producers, but we need farm workers, and that's an an issue in and of itself. But um, has that had an impact, or what kind of impact has that had, especially along that southern border? Yeah, well, that's a big issue for us, and it's a complicated issue for us. Because, one, there is the security issue out there. And it's a security issue for our members who actually farm and ranch on the border because they are being inundated every day with people who are coming across their land, cutting fences, breaking water supplies, breaking into their houses, stealing their things, stealing their vehicles. That's unacceptable. People who live on the border should not have to live in fear. So we need to provide some security for them. It's also about providing us security as an industry because anybody who's coming across the border illegally that has foot and mouth disease on the sole of their boots because they've come up out of Venezuela and other countries, that's a problem for us. So it's not just that personal security of those members who live on the border, it's the bigger security of the industry. But at the same time, we have to make sure that we do have a workforce because we require a workforce in not only farms and ranches, but also in feedlots and packing plants to ensure that we can get that animal not only uh, off the farm, but ultimately processed and into the grocery store. And so we need an immigrant uh, workforce in order, a legal legal immigrant workforce, in order to make that happen. So those are all things that we've made it very clear, not only to uh, uh, the administration, but also to Congress, that from us as a cattle industry, they need to act. I know that, uh, you know, a lot of folks that either, you know, are, have cattle or are or working um, say on a ranch that speaks Spanish and I just learned about how some of the BQA uh, programs are being uh, translated. I thought that's kind of interesting. You know, Beef Quality Assurance, BQA is one of the most popular programs that's out there. Checkoff funded, shows how the checkoff can improve our overall herd and it has been amazing at helping producers understand the best way to work their cattle, process their cattle, handle their cattle and we're going to continue to grow it and one of the ways that we felt we could grow it is making sure that all of these modules are in Spanish given the fact that so many Spanish speakers are in feedlots and packing plants and driving trucks. So we're seeing a lot of really positive feedback there and our uh, tagline of the, the right time and the right, right way uh, is is um, has, has resonated, I believe. And also, you know, when you think about the bigger issue of, of sustainability, when you ask the consumer about sustainability, they actually wonder about animal welfare. And BQA allows us to show all the great things that we're doing to protect the welfare of our animals. 
in order to uh, have the best product out there and ultimately satisfy their need for a high-quality product and their curiosity about how those cattle are treated. When you use the word sustainability, it means one thing to NCBA. A lot of other people do have a different definition that really has nothing to do with really real sustainability, especially when it comes to economics, for example. But let's talk uh, about another um, issue, and that is the fact that we've had a decline in the number of cattle, the herd smaller, we've got volatility, we've got uncertainty because of some of this. What's the status of that for cattle producers, and uh, what can or is being done to, to help? You know, overall volatility is something that plagues this industry all the time. And it is uh, a big part of why NCBA exists, to find ways to help manage that volatility, to find ways to help producers manage that risk. And so a lot of it is the work that we do and just making sure we understand what's going on in the marketplace. So that way we can share that information. And if there's anything that's going on that is improper, to be able to have the right people look at it. But really one of the things that we're looking at is what kind of tools are available to help producers manage that risk. And one of those is LRP, Livestock Risk Protection. LRP has been a very popular program. It's uh, offered or supported by the Risk Management Agency out of USDA. It's offered by most local insurance agents. And what it does is it gets cow-calf producers, especially smaller cow-calf producers, a tool that they can use to try to help manage this volatility, manage this risk, and hopefully make sure that they are not subject to the whims of the market that we have seen, especially here over the past three or four years. And we're going to continue to find ways to promote that product, make that product better, and ultimately ensure that a risk management tool for smaller producers in particular works. I know there are a lot of issues that you're dealing with, some of them that uh, aren't just brand new, like Waters of the U.S., for example. That hasn't kind of like gone away, right? You know, Waters of the United States hasn't gone away, but we're in a much better place than we were. Matter of fact, we're we're smiling because we have the high ground on this. This is something we've been working on, shoot, for, for almost 20 years when you look back at some of the first legislation that was even introduced in this arena. But the biggest game changer for us was the 2023 decision by the Supreme Court to disallow the significant nexus test. That significant nexus test, basically saying what's close enough to be able to impact a navigable water, was going to bring in just about every body of water or potential body of water or water feature that's out there. It was going to cover the entire United States. And so by having the Supreme Court rule the way they did, that gave us a huge victory in protecting private property rights. Right now it's a matter of trying to figure out what they're going to do with seasonal or ephemeral streams, especially those that cross state lines. And we are currently involved in in several legal actions to try to help finalize that. But right now we have the high ground on the WOTUS issue. Before we close, can you just uh, maybe talk about sort of the the status of NCBA? How is the organization doing? What's your outlook? What are some of the things you're looking ahead to? You know, we're starting our 126 years in association. So I think that really shows the strength of our group to hold strong, and to be able to go through what are a lot of times some awfully choppy waters in this industry. And the reason why is because of the strength of the membership. It's a membership that continues to grow. It's a membership that we rely on to set the direction of this association. We as staff don't lead this association. Cattle producers lead this association. Cattle producers debate the issues. Cattle producers, like they're doing here at CattleCon, are going to sit in these committees 
They're going to debate. They're going to discuss. They're going to pass policy. That policy goes to the board of directors, which is also made up of cattle producers. And if they pass it, then it's going to go out in a ballot form to every member of this association. Only after that do we then take it to Capitol Hill or to the administration and try to execute it. That's the power of this association is the member engagement and the member voice. All right. I said before we close, but I did have one more thought back on CattleCon itself. Um, besides changing the name, and we're in Orlando this year, but you kind of moved some of the programming around. Yeah, well, we want to make sure we're always keeping it fresh. And one of the things that we have heard over time is that in a lot of cases, people have to really make some hard decisions on what they want to attend. So we've reordered things. We've kind of spread out things like Cattlemen's College over the course of the entire week rather than just in one dedicated day. And even though we're here on the front end, the feedback that we're getting is people really like the changes we've made. And I think that's one of the reasons why we have a higher attendance here at CattleCon than we did in last year's convention in New Orleans. Well, that is fantastic, and I want to thank you, Colin, for the time here. We are at CattleCon 2024. I'm Chuck Zimmerman reporting. We'll be right back. You are listening to the Agnet News Hour. Now for more news. The USDA is putting a focus on specialty crops with new investments and the Specialty Crop Competitive Initiative. USDA Undersecretary for Marketing and Regulatory Programs and fifth-generation farmer, Ginny Lester Moffat says the initiative is part of a larger effort to support specialty crop producers. This is really aimed at enhancing and partnering with the specialty crop industry in across the USDA to make sure, first, the resources that USDA has for producers are, um, are pulled together in one place so producers have one-stop shop to, to learn more about all the resources we have, but then also to hear from producers about how our resources can continue into the future to better serve specialty crop producers. She says it's a multi-agency effort within the USDA. So that is all of us at USDA coming together, recognizing that across our different agencies at the department, we touch on and support specialty crop producers, whether that is things through crop insurance designed for specialty crop producers to research, to market and promotion opportunities, Lester Moffat was in Michigan last week to talk with and hear from producers. Our hope is to continue to ensure that specialty crop producers remain competitive and can continue to improve their sustainability and profitability of their operations. She also visited packing houses and heard about continuing labor needs. That's today's top agriculture news. I'm Sabrina Halverson. Thank you for sharing your morning with us. To get more information on the topics you heard today, visit Agnet West online at agnetwest.com. You can also stay connected by following us on our social media at Agnet West on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. You can also find our broadcast team of Brian German and Sabrina Halvertson on Facebook and Twitter. Thank you for listening to the Agnet News Hour from Agnet West. Agnet West Radio Network, your primary choice for agriculture news.